Video games are super fun and super expensive. And once you bust open that plastic, you're stuck with them. Unless you download them digitally. That's why Redbox lets you try out the hottest new games risk-free. Right now, you can rent Middle Earth, Shadow of War, Destiny 2, NBA 2K18, and more. Text achievement to 727272. That's 727272 for a free one-night game rental. Redbox. A smarter way to watch and play. Offer expires December 31st, 2017. Subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. Payment card required. If you're not in the text club, Redbox will send you an additional text with an invite to join the recurring alerts. Message and data rates may apply for terms. Visit http www.redbox.com slash text club. And for the privacy policy, visit redbox.com slash privacy. And we also want to tell you that the Total War Warhammer series has returned to critical acclaim. Join the battle with four all-new playable races. The Noble High Elves, their murderous cousins, the Dark Elves. Why do the Dark Elves always have to be the bad ones? I'm just, just asking. Just asking. The Ancient and Orderly Lizard Men and the Ravenous, Destructive Skaven in the most absorbing story-driven real-time strategy game of the year. Visit TotalWar.com for more information or head over to Steam to purchase your copy of Total War Warhammer 2 today. Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I am a writer for TheRinger.com. I'm joined, as always, by Jason Concepcion, also yeah. a writer for TheRinger.com. We are part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Jason, I went ahead with my video game bachelor party as planned oh, man. this past weekend. Sorry you couldn't make it, but I am it was sorry too. a day-long orgy of wow. video gaming, both past and present. I will say that my main takeaway from this weekend... GoldenEye hasn't aged all that well. I've got to say, I feel bad saying that. Maybe it's that my GoldenEye skills haven't aged all that well, but it's not just the look. It's not just that everyone's head is a triangle in that game, (laughs) but it's also, I I, I can't really tell what's going on. It kind of, going back to a single joystick shooter after all these years, that is a a large leap into the past. Yeah, the aiming (laughs) was very tough, if I recall. Funny yeah, story you basically about... have to play that game on, on auto-aim, and, and yes. even so, it's not easy. Funny story about GoldenEye that may get cut out of the podcast. On Facility, <laughs> you remember Facility, the map with the, with the bathroom, uh-huh. with the public bathroom? Yes. Um, the cool yes. thing about, about GoldenEye, because it was split screen, is you could use a character as a camera and then have other characters act out a scene. So we had um, Bond get in the bathroom one time. The funniest thing I've ever <laughs> no. seen. We used short round <laughs> as the camera, and the thing is, like, if you uh, if you waggle the left stick back and forth, like up and down, the character looks up and down. So it, you could really you could really do it with like the head bobbing up and down, and then you can make Bond really like shake as if as if reaching the heights of of pleasure. What that was a thing that we did one night while uh, when we got tired of of playing Goldeneye, and it was great. Is that it? Is that at your bachelor party? That was not at my bachelor party. That was uh, just a thing that my friends and I would do. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, maybe Golden Knight has aged well in some respects then. 
<laughs> not as a game, but as a blowjob simulator. Yes, <laughs> blowjob simulator <laughs> bond. What did you miss? Yeah. Any baseball games in your during your blackboard party? I sure did, but which it one? was a sacrifice I had to make. I, I, I missed major baseball action. Which ones? Which ones you missed? Gosh, I don't even. I don't know. I oh, missed. A, I missed most awesome. of a, a Yankees Indians game. It's the division series going on yeah. as as we were doing that division as we were doing that bachelor party. But Super Smash Brothers, Goldeneye, Mario Kart, Halo One and Three. Wow! And also Rocket League. They just took precedence over Man, baseball sounds, at this point. Yeah, that's, it was a lot of fun. Really great. Yeah. So as mentioned. I am getting married this week, tomorrow. In fact, if you're listening to this when we're putting the podcast up on Friday, you'll be there to be a witness to this union. And because of wedding planning, because of travel to my wedding, we're not getting a lot of gaming time in this week, no. which is a shame because there are some interesting games coming out this week. Echo, which looks really cool. There yep. is the new Middle Earth game, of course. We'll get to all things in time, but... This week, we are talking about sports games, and it's going to be kind of a themed episode. We're going to talk about 2K player ratings in just a moment. Of course, we did a show on 2K a couple weeks ago. You wrote for the game. You did, did not create the player ratings, but Mike Stoffer did, did, and we're going to talk to That's him right. shortly. Later in the episode, we'll bring on our colleague, Zach Cram, who did a great retrospective story on Backyard Baseball on its 20th anniversary at TheRinger.com this week. Just wanted to mention, last week we talked about Cuphead, and this week we were talking about how the game lends itself to speed running and challenge runs. Someone beat Cuphead in like an hour and a half using Dance Dance Revolution pads. Yeah, that's like (laughs) I don't understand how that's even possible. (laughs) Neither do I. This is something that this this guy has done before with other games, but this just seems that the video game community is great and wonderful and we love it, except when it's being toxic and, and terrible, right. which we've talked about too, but constantly surprises me with the inventiveness of the challenges that yep. people concoct on the way to beating games, which just makes me feel worse about my own skills because I often can't beat them just playing with a controller the way the developers intended. This was an impressive accomplishment I just wanted to mention. And I also wanted to say maybe my favorite thing in video gaming is esports competitors measuring their gaming space before they start playing. I don't know whether you've seen this, but the way that esports competitors will use rulers to arrange themselves and their tools of the trade. So this past weekend, a Street Fighter V Pro Tokido, and you should look up this clip if you haven't. It's been gifted and memed already. But he broke out a tape measure to ensure that he was like sitting <laughs> exactly the right distance from the monitor that he wants to sit. So I think it was like 80 centimeters or something. So it's you get a split-screen view of the two competitors preparing for this match and the other guy whatever he's just looking at his controller he's getting ready and meanwhile tokido is pulling out a tape measure and he is known as murder face because he just has this like nice there to begin with but he holds up this tape measure to his murder face and is measuring the precise distance from the monitor this is something that we've also seen in the past from other competitors flash the StarCraft player would break out a ruler and just measure the distance from his keyboard to the edge of his desk. It's just like experts at their craft. And this is one of my favorite things about traditional 
ball and bat sports is that players will have their little idiosyncrasies and their mannerisms. Yep. And, you know, whether it's like a, a guy doing some kind of ritual in between pitches in, in baseball or basketball warm-up routine or whatever. And in esports, we get it too. It just involves rulers a lot of the time. This is my favorite thing in video games. Well, uh, I enjoy the, the the merging of physical space with virtual space as a metaphor for our current world. <laughs> right. Why should they not measure their distance from yes. the monitor? You have to have just every variable down to the centimeter. I appreciate this. So let's bring in Mike Stoffer. Let's talk about how the 2K player ratings are made. And now we're talking with Mike Stoffer. If you have a problem with the rating of your favorite player in NBA 2K, it's Mike Stoffer's fault, basically. <laughs> um, Mike is the guy who creates the player ratings for NBA 2K, the latest uh, version of that, NBA 2K18, out a few weeks ago. Mike, thank you for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Uh, Mike, who has given you the most shit this season about their rating not being good enough? <laughs> It's kind of hard to, you know, pick one player. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy how the ratings have uh, <laughs> blown up this year. It's like everybody's got, you know, so many players ask for their rating, and, and uh, you know, every one of them thinks that they're too low. So it's, it's kind of tricky, but uh, everybody wants to be higher. So. So, well, okay, I understand that, like, maybe I know you don't want to put uh, any of these important uh, player relationships out in front street, but... Could you anonymously give me what's like a good anonymous critique, like without outing the player? What is a good one that you got um, this season? It's, it's you know, it's it, another thing that makes it kind of tough is that uh, what we release <laughs> is the overall rating. So you know, we have like fifty individual attributes that make right. up the overall rating. And and you know, well, John Wall obviously was upset. I, he kind of he tweeted Ronnie Two K, who's kind of our social media presence. Uh, yeah. He called him a bum. bum well, by the way, it's rating, always so. it's always Ronnie's fault. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> Ronnie is uh, Ronnie is responsible for the entire game, as far as I know. Everything that happens in in two K <laughs> is Ronnie's fault. So let's just put that on Ronnie. There you go. But but yeah, so I mean, it's it's kind of tough because obviously everybody wants their overall rating to be higher, right. but you know, very few are kind of talking about like what attributes uh, that they think should be higher to you know to make it higher, what attributes are too low, and that kind of stuff. So. It's kind of tough. They, you know, obviously everybody wants to be higher, but I kind of, we don't just pick an overall rating. It's, it's a series of like 50 attributes that we go through that, that runs through a formula and spits out what, you know, we think the player value is. Yeah. Well, how how long have you been responsible for these ratings? Because it used to be in earlier editions of 2K that there was like a mysterious insider character, right? And the person who was actually controlling these ratings was not publicized, was not acknowledged. But that changed, what, in 2013 edition? It's been a while. So was that when you came on board yeah. in, the, in the franchise? Yeah, kind of since uh, next gen. I think my first official title was uh, NBA 2K15. So I started the company in uh, 2014. And kind of work, you know, work really closely with the gameplay team to try to get these ratings as accurate as possible. And so how has that process evolved in your time doing it? Has it become much more rigorous? Have you changed the process? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, before I started, uh, there were much fewer ratings than we have than we have now. We, we wanted, you know, to be as accurate as possible. So we've expanded, you know, things like the 
it used to just be three-point shooting, and now we have three separate ratings for three-point shooting. That's your open three, your your contested three, and your off-the-dribble three. And, uh, you know, we, we rate all of those individually, and, and we kind of just expand and try to be as in-depth as possible. So, I mean, back then, um, you know, in the old gen days, uh, b- before that, there were much fewer ratings, and we've kind of expanded it now to close to 50 ratings, uh, not counting like all the different durabilities for each body part and all that kind of stuff. So it's, 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 we've kind of expanded it to make it as in depth as possible. What were some of the unrealistic things that would happen when you started on the series or even before, maybe when you were just playing it before you were responsible for these ratings, what were the things you would see that it was just a case of like the game, not taking into account some aspect of a player's skills? Sure, yeah. So uh, one of the things that we did also was readjust our overall formulas. So, uh, for example, uh, Tony Allen and J.J. Redick are completely different shooting guards. And, you know, a couple years back, we had one overall rating that would kind of look at a player based on how good they were at being a shooting guard. And and since then, we've like as an all-around shooting guard, and since then we've kind of adjusted the formula to apply certain weights to, you know, if you're an outside shooting shooting guard or a defensive shooting guard, um, we want, we now rate you towards a specific uh, formula, and that kind of gives you a. It, it represents the player value a little bit high, a little bit better. So you know, guys like Tony Allen maybe didn't have the three point shooting or you know the shooting in general. So he's rating too low for what his value is in the NBA, and and that's something that we kind of worked hard to try to you know as far as the ratings go, just represent player value a little bit better. And it was one of the the key things for doing that. I'm not going to rest until you uh, shit on a player who is complaining too much. No, I'm just kidding. But one of the big one of the big controversies this uh, this off season heading into the season was um, ESPN ranked Lonzo Ball ahead of Carmelo Anthony in their annual uh, list of of players. Um, how do you guys take on um, having to rate a rookie? Obviously, very difficult. You've never seen him in a pro milieu. Um, Lonzo particularly has got a kind of strange game. How do you how do you go about trying to um, trying to fix the ratings for a player like that? No, it's, it's actually really interesting because, like, like you said, we don't have the data, and a lot of people, you know, are watching summer league and seeing how this kind of blows up. But we've also seen a lot of. I'm not saying that this will happen to any of these players, but we've seen a lot of fools' gold in summer league <laughs> before too. So a lot of players putting up big numbers, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the NBA. Um, and, and kind of with any rating, whether it's a rookie, whether it's a you know a veteran, uh, but rookie more so, it's just a projection on uh, what their value is. And, and actually, this year with Colts and Ball is the highest that uh, you know since I've started here that we've ever rated a rookie at an 80 overall. So just wow. uh, you know, it's kind of with with the hype of uh, you know these rookies coming in and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but I will say you know they're the first players that will have their you know ratings adjusted if they're not living up. To that level or if they're overperforming so you know rookies are the ones that we kind of keep the closest eye on once the season starts because we finally have some data to back up some of these projections now are you keeping an eye on on markel fultz's uh shot mechanics his his uh changing ever changing ever evolving free throw shot <laughs> which now looks like i i guess i would describe it as like if the basketball was covered in acid and you were trying to shoot it without touching it as much as possible like uh, are you just ready to drop this guy's free throw uh, rating, like I don't know, ten, fifteen points? Like it's crazy. It's it's you know it's it, over the past few years, a couple of years, it's, it's, as the league's changing, it's just crazy how uh, 
much how much noise we get in the off season of a player adding a three or their free th- you know with Markel's free throw looking a little bit off right now. It, it, I try not to over we try not to overreact to uh, no come on overreact here in the off season. Let's overreact. <laughs> no, I, <don't. laughs> I try not to overreact too badly to some of the some of the things we hear in the off season. But then you got guys like you know Brooke Lopez who. I don't know, made three threes in his life before <laughs> last year and made almost, you know, shot almost 400. So it's like, it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, you, you try not to overreact, but at the end of the day, you want it to be as accurate as possible. And if Markel uh, continues, you know, to look like it's going to be a struggle from the line, it'll, it'll certainly be represented in the game. So it's uh, it's tricky, but I try to, you know, try to get some data before reacting too harshly. You're responsible for rosters too, right? And, and keeping teams up to date. And this was a crazy offseason, lots of player movement, which I know from reading the ringer.com. And I'm assuming that you were person in charge of making sure that players, when they would move from one team to the next, would also move from one team to the next in 2K. So at what point was mm-hmm. the busiest, I, I guess, part of the process for you, or do you have a, a really automated way of keeping track of all of that so it's not making manual adjustments? Well, it's just you know, kind of like you said, I'm just I'm we're just keeping track of it. You know, as anytime we hear any kind of news, we're making them you know moving the player to one team to the other. It's kind of nice over the summer, although this was one of the craziest off seasons that I can remember as far as moving players, you know, from one team to another goes. Uh, it's nice because there's a little bit more time since the game's not quite out yet. Um, but I, I think the craziest time of my year is always the trade deadline. And I mean, a couple of years back, there was just so much movement. And, uh, you know, we pride ourselves on getting these updates out to users as, as quickly as possible. And I'm proud to say that we got it out the next day. But it's just, it's, it's always tricky when there's player movement, especially, uh, you know, when our time frame's just short and we want to get it out so people can start playing with these guys. But, you know, even even after the game shipped this year, there was some movement with the Carmelo trade and the and the Dwayne Wade signing, and and we uh, you know plugged the, it happened on a Saturday I think, and he was in the game uh, that Saturday, so it was kind of cool to get a uh, you know to get the pe- people who play the game these updated rosters as quickly as possible. Um, I understand if you can't get like too into how the sauce is made, but are there any particular categories that are weighted more than any other? For instance, um, one would imagine developing a three-point shot, considering how important that is to the modern game, could really um, take a player's rating up, like say, faster than um, defensive skill. Yeah, I mean, sure. It, it kind of, it, like I said before, with the, you know the Tony Allen and JJ Redick example, it, it kind of depends. I feel like we've really adapted these formulas to kind of represent everybody's skill because these players are in the NBA for a reason and they're getting you know crazy amounts of money and signing huge contracts. So we want to try to represent all their skills uh, as well as we can. And and so our formulas, obviously, like per per position, is going to weight are going to weight things a little differently and. You know, as a center, obviously rebounding is going to be one of the more important things. And, and for, for a rebounding center, or rim protector, that kind of player, um, you know, a rim protector, obviously you're going to have your defensive attributes weight more. Um, for an outside shooting guard, obviously the three-point ratings are going to weight more. And I, and I would, like kind of like you said, since the league has evolved to this three-point shooting league, anytime you're developing that, that jumper, it's, it's going to boost your overall and uh, a good amount. So, yeah, yeah, like you said, the three ball is pretty important. Uh in most of these ratings uh, scales, do 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 players like ever get into your DMs or anything? Like, do they ever come at you personally? Like, I you know, 
it's this is all as we said Ronnie 2K's fault. He's responsible for everything that happens <laughs> in 2K. But do they ever do they ever like approach you personally and be like, "Come on, dude. What the hell?" Yeah, no. I I've, I've talked to players before. We've had players come in the office and so yeah, like you said sometimes people find you'll find me on Twitter, other social medias and that. Uh, and find me that way. So it's always so much fun talking to the players about their ratings. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, everybody always thinks they should be higher no matter what. But it's kind of cool to actually, like, chat with them about some of the individual attributes. Like, for example, oh, man, a few years back, I think Lance Stevenson was out in the office. And uh, <laughs> he was kind of, he was upset about his ratings. And we were sitting down and looking at, like, his uh, – He's like, oh, my driving layup's only like, uh, I can't remember, I think it was like 85 or something. He's like, my driving layup's only 85. I'm one of the best finishers in the league. And I was like, well, actually, that's the second highest layup rating for a shooting guard. And he's like, oh, well, actually, that, that makes sense. So it's kind of cool. You get these, you know, they're the experts. They're the ones that are out there playing you know, every day. And uh, it, it's just fun to talk about them and kind of show them a little bit about my world, too, and uh, how some of these ratings come to be. And most of the time they understand. Sometimes they still think I'm crazy or it works. <laughs> Their ratings are crazy, but um, it's it's just fun to you know talk to them and, and kind of give them a little bit of insight. Do you get any useful feedback from fans, from players of 2K who've just identified players who seem to be over underpowered once they have their hands on the game? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say most of my feedback I get is from fans. There. It's a it's a really interesting position, you know. You know, working with a team and doing these ratings, it's kind of almost like being a referee. Like nobody ever is like, oh, really good job, great rating. <laughs> it's always it's always what they don't like most of yeah. the time. But it's uh, it, but it, but yeah, it, it's it's really great feedback. You know, once you wait out all the name calling and uh, things that they don't like about it, <laughs> uh, you get, you get some good information, you know, even if it's not about ratings, you know, sometimes we're like, Oh, this player who we recently added, his number was, is off. Can I, can we get that fixed? And, and we're just, we're just trying to make it as accurate as possible. So, but most of the feedback's about ratings and most of it, you know, they just, their favorite players and high enough. And I can understand that I'm a fan too. So. That's a great point because I, I mean, do you have to keep your fandom quiet now? Because, I would imagine such a thing would engender, you know, like accusations that you're favoriting favoritism of favoritism towards a player that's on the team that you root for. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's uh, I don't know. I we, with all of these ratings, we have about 50, like I said, about fifty attributes, and that's why it's just so important to keep, you know, to just always rely on data and be as objective as possible when making these ratings. Uh, I'm obviously like a fan. I'm, I think when we talked before, Jason, I said yeah. I'm from Cleveland, so I'm I'm obviously a, a <laughs> Cleveland guy. So uh, of course, but but I think I told you before, most most Cleveland people don't like me either. So <laughs> everybody everybody always thinks someone's you know underrated. So it's it's at the end of the day, though. Like I said, it's why I just rely so heavily on the numbers uh, and have it grounded in statistics. So that way, it's uh, got something to roll bit like rely on. How has this spread of advanced stats and the availability of tracking technology like SportView, all of that has come into vogue, obviously, in the league and front offices. Has that affected the way you do your job? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're always trying to adjust the formulas, not not just the overall formula, but for each individual rating. We're trying to figure out the best way to represent that in the game. And, and yeah, there's there's, like you said, so much more information than there was five years ago. NBA.com with all the SportView data. Um, and it's it's just it's all about tweaking these formulas to make sure that 
the players are represented properly in the game. If they're play, you know, if the players are too moving too fast or something like that, we're going to look at the speed rating and, and try to take the numbers that we have and, and adjust those to make it more realistic. So it's 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 been crazy how much uh, information's become available to the public, and um, it kind of helps you know helps people give fans give better feedback too because they see some of these advanced numbers and like wait. This looks good. Why? Why is it so low in the game? So, so there's so whenever there's mistakes, you know, fans are becoming smarter too, and and that's a good thing. So, uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff with that. Uh, something I've been I've been thinking about since the the rise of the Warriors is they're so statistically good. Their shooting percentages are so good. I mean, they got three of the best ten players in the NBA. If you count Clay, then you've got uh, you know four of the best fifteen or something like that players in the NBA. These they shoot, you know, forty percent from three, take a ton of threes. It, does it ever get to a point where you're like, man, it's just like way too easy to play as these guys? Yeah, for sure. It's it's tough. It's well, I mean, it's isn't that kind of like real life too? <laughs> <Yeah. either? laughs> I mean, really. Yeah, but at least in real life, it's like you know, like uh, Tristan Thompson can like you know subtly elbow KD in the stomach or something, you know, something there's, you can ramp up the physicality in a way that uh, takes the edge off um, of, of a team like that. And you saw that certainly in in the final series uh, before last season, but you know, in the video game, you know, it's the ideal situation. So, I mean, how much, how much debate goes into, into those ratings because of that? Yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, we're always going to try to rely on the numbers, and and like you said, with with a team like Golden State that is just getting wide open, you know, good looks, uh, the numbers are going to be higher. You know, it's, it's kind of the perfect scenario. So, uh, so the ratings are a little bit higher, and that's why sometimes you can't go a hundred percent by the numbers. For example, you got a guy like Steph Curry who's running through a million screens to try to get through, you know, get his open shot, and has to work so hard to get open before he shoots it. Um, that shot's not the same as a guy who's post, you know, as a center who's sitting in the corner and shooting a wide open shot because they're begging him to. So it's it's like because he's not exerting as much energy to get open. So so there's certain there's always going to be certain subjective factors that we're going to have to look at to try to make it accurate and and like you said, not make some of these teams overpowered uh, uh, because because of the quality of looks that they're getting. And, and I guess I'm talking specifically about shooting, but um, but yeah, it's it's why. Although we do try to rely on data as much as possible, it'd be silly to kind of think that all shots are created equal. Yeah, so there must be less subjectivity in the job than there was even when you started. Like you're mentioning that you talk about a player's speed. Well, we might literally know how fast that player is now, whereas before it was more of an eyeballing it thing. Do you like that? Are you happy to have some of that taken out of your hands or or become less of a judgment call? Or do you miss that? Well, you know, at the end of the day is, as long as it's accurate, uh, that's that is what I'm most is most important to me. So I mean, uh, it's 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 just as fun to, for me to find a bunch of new statistics to use in the game that we can, uh, you know, turn into a formula that we can turn into an individual attribute to help us get a better representation of the player uh, than it is to kind of you know. I, obviously, we're watching a ton of film, watching all the games or as many games as we can. It's always you know a couple different ones a night. Uh, to try to get it as accurate as possible because it's it's that balance of the the eye test and stats, but it's uh it's it's hard to say which I like more. I just I like I like it when it's accurate and people you know people who are playing the game are happy and feel like what they're seeing in in 2K is what's going on 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 their TV. So 
I'm not sure if I I'm not I'm not sure which one's more exciting to me, but like I said, it's just, it's all about getting it accurate, and ho- hopefully people like them. <laughs> Do you ever get envious of developers and other games who are just creating fictional characters and could just assign whatever <laughs> attributes they want? They could go wild. They could have people on extreme ends of either spectrum. Whereas you're trying to mirror real life. You're trying to bring real people into this representation of the game. Do you ever just want to indulge your creativity in some other way? <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, I don't know. It's it's, it's kind of interesting. I've, I'm like, I have a math background. I was going to be a math teacher before I started working at 2K. Uh, so I'm all about, you know, wanting things to be accurate. And it's, I'm not, I'm not necessarily the most creative uh, guy in the world. I'm all about the numbers. So it's, it kind of depends. Obviously, you know, like to have fun when you create yourself in the video game, you, you know, when yeah. you play my career and you create yourself, you're always going to change it up and, you know, make make yourself awesome. But I I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing and trying to just represent these players. <laughs> when you create yourself in the game, do you stick to your real life skills or do you exaggerate slightly? And what are your your own ratings? Oh yeah, well, no. When I play the game, I don't know. It's uh, I've never actually seen myself play. I don't I don't videotape myself or anything like that. But I make myself on 99. So I'm not sure if I'm actually that good in real life. But uh, I don't know. I always boost my stats way too high. <laughs> well, Mike, um, just a small suggestion. Chris Stapp's Porzingis, 98 overall. <laughs> uh, we've been talking to Mike Stauffer. He is the guy that you can blame, aside from Ronnie 2K, for your player, your favorite player's uh, overall stats in NBA 2K18. Mike, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Great talking to you. Well, thanks to Michael Stauffer, and we'll be right back with Zach Cram on Backyard Baseball. For those of you not already playing, we'd like to introduce the official mobile game of AMC's The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead No Man's Land from game developer Next Games. The Walking Dead No Man's Land is a turn-based action strategy game where you battle hordes of walkers with all your favorite heroes, including Daryl, Rick, and Michonne. By building your camp and enlisting more survivors and heroes to join you slowly, but surely... Like the show, you'll become a force to be reckoned with. There's tons of playable content that lets you relive the highlights of Season 7 and throwback moments from earlier seasons of the TV show, as well as new hardcore survival game mode for experienced players called The Distance! Watch out for new content for the upcoming Season 8 premiere at the end of October. Can you survive and stay human? Download The Walking Dead No Man's Land for free from the App Store or Google Play. Or... Go to getnomansland.com slash ricknow and get Negan for free. This special offer is only available right now, so do not wait. Don't! That's getnomansland.com slash rick. Everyone knows Redbox is all about renting movies and video games for cheap. You know that. I know that. Jason knows that. I do. But did you know? that Redbox also sells used games starting as low as $4.99. What? If you didn't, you know now. So for the price of one of those extra-large caramel frap, double espresso, no-foam, two-pump, drinkity drinks you love, you could start the most legendary game night tradition ever, playing your hearts out all the way up to bedtime, sometimes beyond. 
For way less than you pay in store, you can keep your kids quietly entertained all month long so you can practice that extremely complex and extremely painful yoga pose and get it down to perfection so you can impress your entire class with their superhuman flexibility. I did not see this ad going in this direction, but that's where we're going. (laughs) That's right. Buying games from Redbox is way cheaper option, and this time you keep them forever. Right now, Doom, love Doom, Dark Souls 3, and Madden NFL 17 are all for sale. So head over to the box and do game night on the cheap. Yeah. Redbox, the smarter way to watch and play. It rhymes. All right. We go now from big budget blockbuster sports game to cult favorite sports game from realistically meticulously modeled to cute and cartoony from basketball to baseball and from Mike Stoffer to our colleague, ringer writer and yeah. editorial assistant, Zach Cram, who has recently completed his life's work up to this point. I'm sure he has many great works ahead of him, but he has published a massive retrospective reported talk to all the principals involved in the making of the classic Backyard Baseball, which just celebrated its 20th anniversary this week. Zach, hello and welcome. Hello. Incredible. Tell us what got you into this game. I know that you are of the age of the generation that came along at the right time for Backyard Baseball to be big. But for people who missed out, for people who are not aware of this game, tell us about your own history about it, with it and tell us just about its general appeal and continued cultural resonance. So I actually never played Backyard Baseball, the original. All right, that that's it. Now. Good podcast, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Uh, we'll see you. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on. But I, I grew up playing Backyard Baseball 2001, which I discuss in a section of the piece. Okay. That was the first yeah. baseball game that included child-sized versions of professional superstars. Uh, and mm-hmm. I had that game. I played backyard soccer, backyard football, backyard basketball, backyard hockey, and another version of backyard baseball. So my computer when I was younger, uh, we had a stack of all our computer games next to the monitor, and it was mostly various humongous entertainment products. Uh, backyard yeah. baseball and the backyard sports franchise itself, the way it worked is you would play a sports game. You could either play a single game or for a full season. And all of the characters, at least in the initial game before they added pros, were a made-up mm-hmm. cast of 30 sort of neighborhood pals who each had their own unique eccentricities and oddities about them. There was Pablo Sanchez, who was yeah. the best player at everything. There was Stephanie Morgan, yes. who was the baseball nut and always was chewing bubble gum. There was Dmitry Petrovich, who was the nerd character. So there were all these different characters who sort of resembled people you would know from your own neighborhood, and you would pick a team of them and compete. Mm -hmm. And give us the origin story of the franchise, because Humongous Entertainment, the company that developed this game, was not a maker of sports games. They were maker of of kids' games, essentially. And there is an actual baseball tie-in to the creation of Backyard Baseball, a Major League Baseball tie-in, which I was not aware of until I saw your story. Yes, so uh, Nick Mirkovich was an artist at Humongous Entertainment in the mid-90s, and he worked on the various educational or adventure games that Humongous had. And he was a huge sports fan. He played a lot of sports games himself. And one day he thought, why can't I combine those two loves and take sports, which I love, and kids' games and make a sports game for kids? He has a great 
quote in the piece where he says, you know, one day I just thought, I've seen movies about kids playing sports, so it has to be a genre. Why isn't there a game in that genre? Also, at this time, he was playing games like Madden and FIFA and realizing that those were getting more and more complicated and harder for young kids to play. Uh, Humongous appealed to kids you know, between the ages of 5 and 10. So having a single-click or point-and-click game would appeal to that audience. He pitched this idea, and it sat on the studio head's desk for six months, maybe a year. <laughs> And he forgot yeah. about it. He went to work on another game. And then this was around 1995, early 1996. The Mariners started playing really well, and the studio was based near Seattle. And Mirkovich says that everyone in the office, even the non-sports fans, sort of were swept up in this wave of baseball euphoria. The Mariners made their first ever playoffs in 1995. They had Ken Griffey and Alex Rodriguez, who were two of the coolest players in the game. And then Ron Gilbert, who is one of the heads of Humongous Entertainment, came in one day and said, let's make this game. And mm-hmm. we can give credit to the Mariners for bringing us this uh, cult classic. <laughs> yes, their, um, su- their success came at the expense of your Yankees, of course, but at least you got back <laughs> our baseball out of it. They've the never won the World Series, but at least they brought us Pablo Sanchez. The relish in <laughs> yeah. Ben's voice, especially the line, your Yankees. Oh, Ben. <laughs> they used oh, to be my Yankees, ben. too. Ben, tell us, tell us, tell the crowd here, tell the audience what your what your Xbox Live gamer tag is. <laughs> no, I'm too ashamed. No. All my childhood screenings were were Yankees related because I was a Yankees fan. I am not ashamed to admit that. And uh, as I grew up, I had to surrender my allegiance to any particular team. But I'm not hiding it. I was a Yankees fan. You it's are true. hiding. You're literally you're legitimately hiding it. Okay, yeah, I am hiding it a little bit. What, so, just, <laughs> tell tell us, us, tell us what your game tag is, please. I can't. Just I can't okay, not the numbers, just the just the words. It alludes to the fact that I was born a Yankees fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. All right, moving on. Yes. <laughs> hey, aim is dead. All of our screen names are in the past. Oh, no, sad. What was your aim? What was your aim screen name? The same. No! <laughs> so, Zach, uh, you talk to the developers, and it sounds like they're surprised that people still care about backyard baseball yeah. to the extent that they do, because it doesn't sound like it was a massive hit at the time. Obviously, it spawned sequels. We'll talk about that. So it was successful enough, but it wasn't a massive blockbuster. And yet, 20 years later... People love this game, and I don't know if it's just that it came along at a formative period in people's youths or or what, but why do you think that is? What To what do you attribute the continued appeal and the, the cult status of backyard baseball? I think the series itself helped. The same 30 characters appeared in every single iteration of the game, or at least uh, before the game was sold off, mm-hmm. and you know the more recent... Uh, editions of the game were less well-received. But that core cast of 30 characters, I think, really stuck with people, where even today, people who might not even remember the game that will still remember some of the specifics, whether it's Pablo or Stephanie or some of the other characters I mentioned. Uh, a lot of people were tweeting at me about Keisha Phillips and Pete Wheeler today, who are two of my favorites as well. And I think even though the game might not have sold that well, at first, it began selling a lot better in the early 2000s with mm. sequels. Uh, Rhett Mathis, who is the 
musical composer on the piece tells a story about how Ron Gilbert, who was this studio head, came in and there was some discussion, should we cancel the rest of the series? The first one didn't sell that well. And he said, well, let's not give up after one effort. Let's get to at least three games. And that second and third game was backyard soccer and backyard football. And those started selling better and people either went back to the original backyard baseball game or discovered it once the second baseball game came out. And those are sports fans like me who grew up playing those games. And now that we are older, we have our own social media accounts and we're on baseball Twitter. A lot of people nowadays are comparing Jose Altuve to Pablo Sanchez. So wow. all these things yeah. are, are recircling every so often. To And I really think the fact that it didn't sell that well at first is a, a point in its favor because what cult classic did sell well at first, whether right. it's a video game or a movie, they usually do better later on in nostalgia in people's memories than they did in the initial run. Let's talk about Pablo Sanchez. Perhaps, well, certainly among one, among the greatest video game athletes of all time, surely. <laughs> um, how great, I mean, this is up for debate, but tell us a little bit about Pablo. What to say about Pablo? <laughs> Pablo started off as the best all-around baseball player, uh, and that was in and of itself almost a joke to start. Uh, Mark Pizer, who was the art lead on this game, wasn't a huge baseball fan himself, but he had seen baseball movies, and one that stuck out in both his mind and all the creators' minds while they were making this game was Bad News Bears, the original. Uh, and in the original Bad News Bears, there are two players on the team who don't play very much. They're short, they're kind of out of shape, they only speak Spanish, and they barely actually have any lines at all. And Mark Pizer one day asked, you know, wouldn't it have been funny if these were actually the best players on the team, except because they looked out of shape and uncoordinated and never talked, they never actually got a chance to play. And all, the rest of the room agreed, oh, that would be great, and they decided to build that into their own game. So they built Pablo, who himself is either the shortest or second shortest character in the game, he is described, I included some initial character drawings in the piece, and in every single character drawing, he is described specifically as having a pot belly, which his shirt is not even large enough to <laughs> completely encompass, yeah. uh, except then you take one swing with him and he's liable to hit the ball over the fence. And Pablo himself was a fantastic baseball player. Initially, they actually wanted it to be hidden, sort of like that Bad News Bears joke, but then there were two problems with that plan. One, you'd take one swing with him and you would know immediately that he was the best. And two, they included, like in most sports games, they decided, oh, we'll show some skill ratings and Pablo had the highest skill ratings. Then moving forward to the other games, they thought, well, should we you know, reduce Pablo's skills a bit, make <laughs> someone else the best at soccer, someone else the best at football? Except they also wanted continuity in their game. So if Pablo was the fastest baseball player, he had to be the fastest running back. And if he could throw the ball the hardest in, as a pitcher, then he would also have to be the best quarterback. So he just became the best athlete all around, which uh, Mirkovich told me was kind of like, you know, everyone grew up with that one guy who was the best athlete in the neighborhood. And then he expanded his cultural phenomena from there. Yeah, so I want to ask also about just the, the cast as a whole, because as you mentioned, there is... Mm -hmm. great diversity in both the physical appearance, the race of all of the characters. And that, I think, 
kind of representation has has grown in video games over the couple of decades since Backyard Baseball came out, but it was not the norm at the time. And just from the quotes you include in your story here, it seemed as if it came very naturally to Humongous that they never really even thought about doing it any differently, that it would always be this inclusive. And that has to be at least part of the game's continued appeal, too. Yeah, it's interesting. I asked a couple of the creators specifically, did you intend for this to be sort of a social statement or to talk specifically about equality? And they said, not really. This was just something that sort of organically resulted from them talking about what kind of cast they wanted. Uh, you know, Growing up in their neighborhoods, they said, oh, it didn't matter what your skin color was or how tall you were, whatever. It, you know, Even if you were a boy or a girl, half the cast is female, which is really cool in a sports game. Uh, even the play-by-play announcer yeah. is a black girl, mm-hmm. which I-, I talked with Jason before the piece ran. We couldn't even think of another yeah. game yeah. that has a female announcer. And they talked about, yes, on the one hand, this would probably help them sell the game a little better, but that wasn't really their goal. It was about having that sense of relatability that anyone who wanted to play the game would either find someone who looked like them in the game or someone who, even if their skin color was different, maybe the personality that the character had reminded them of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Diversity is... is it should be – it's something that people should strive for. In video games, it's almost no excuse considering that like these are fictional characters that you can draw and you can make them look like anything. Uh, but one of, one of the kind of uh, stumbling blocks the team fell into was in trying to voice um, Pablo. Should you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the fun things about the game is that all of the characters have their own voice actors. Uh, there were casting calls set up in – Woodenville, Washington, which is where the studio is based. It's near Seattle. And they mainly cast female voices because women are better at coming up with voices for young children. Uh, But one of the characters they had some difficulty casting was Pablo himself. Pablo spoke almost exclusively Spanish. And there were no Latino voice actors who showed up to the auditions, perhaps uh, because of the location or the casting call, whatever. And nobody in the room of people casting the voice actors spoke fluent Spanish. They you know, spoke enough Spanish to be able to write the dialogue, but weren't necessarily attuned quite to what a realistic accent would sound like. Right. So they cast this voice actor. They ran him through his lines. He sounded authentic enough. He had taken Spanish in high school and was able to speak it, but not with a realistic accent. And then... They were putting together the finishing touches on the game. All the artwork had been printed. And then they were you know, playing the game around the office, as studios are wont to do. And there was a programmer on the game working on the physics engine who was from Colombia, the country. And he spoke up at one point and said, wait, that's, that's a white dude trying to speak <laughs> right. Spanish. And they were a little bit worried. At that point, it was too late to change. And they've said, you know, in retrospect, that was likely a mistake on their part, but our are happy that they weren't called out on it and uh, that it doesn't detract from the experience. Can you describe the gameplay for people who haven't played this? Because that's something you convey in your piece, that this could have just been an arcade kind of game. And in even the last few years, we saw like Super Mega Baseball, for instance, was kind of uh, an arcade cartoony 
look, but not really gameplay. It, it played like a baseball game, and that's the way that the creators of Backyard Baseball went too, and they really tried to realistically model this, as you say, to the extent that you can in a game where you have seven-year-olds hitting 400-foot home runs. But what was the thinking behind that? And also the process behind doing it because like two of the three main people who were making this game didn't really know anything about baseball when they became the game. One of my favorite uh, little details in the piece is Rich Moe, who was the lead programmer, told me that you know his company or his team had m- modified the motto KISS, keep it simple, stupid, yeah. into KISS ass, keep it simple and sophisticated, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and the game itself, even in retrospect, as someone who now writes about baseball, is really sophisticated. Yeah. There is an infield fly rule coded in. All of the player stats are kept and calculated. If you play on a season play, you can see your batter's triple slash line and sort by league leaders. And I think that was probably where I first encountered statistics like on base percentage and learned that that's better than batting average. Mm -hmm. And there are really sophisticated aspects of gameplay. You, as the person controlling your team, you both set your lineup and your fielding positions and also actually play as the player, sort of like you would in a Madden or uh, an EA sports game. And as the pitcher, you have four pitches you can throw on any typical pitch, a fastball, a changeup, a curveball to right-handers, or a curveball to left-handers. And as a batter, you have four options to swing, a power swing, a line drive swing, a ground ball swing, and a bunt. And you basically choose that for every pitch, and you swing away or pitch away, and then you move your fielders and run the bases like you would in any baseball game. There's really on the granular gameplay level, not a huge world of difference between backyard baseball and like a modern day MLB The Show. Obviously, MLB The Show is a lot more complicated, but it's not like there are that many crazy things you can do in MLB The Show. They have a few like neighborhood style rules, like there's no leading off, like you wouldn't lead off in a neighborhood baseball game, but there isn't a baseball rule either that it's like missing from the game. Right. There's no like, oh, you can, you know, run whenever you want. No, you actually have to wait at your base and tag up on a sacrifice fly or else it'll be doubled off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Rich Moe, who was in charge of programming, told me when he got the job, the first thing he did was start reading about the physics of baseball. Yeah. Figure out like when a bat strikes a ball, here's how it moves. When it hits off the wall, here's how the ball is going to ricochet. So he was able to build those calculations in as they programmed the game. Um, talk a little bit about um, the, the various influences the developers pulled from, because I think one thing that becomes evident when you read your piece is like, um, you know, from the Bad News Bears to Alex Rodriguez to the Mariners kind of writ large, this game is the product of a kind of wide range of baseball influences. And perhaps that's what helps it resonate so much yeah. uh, in the present day with the nostalgic element. Uh, there were sort of the wide, broad range influences like Bad News Bears sort of sparking the idea for the game, sparking Pablo. Then there were, you know, Alex Rodriguez, I mentioned in the piece, uh, was possibly an influence for Pablo as well because in 1996 at, he was probably the best player in baseball that year and he was 20 years old and that gave the uh, creators the idea like, hey, let's have a young Latino superstar. That would be a cool thing. We love rooting for the guy. I'm sure our fans will 
love rooting for a younger version too. But then there were also the influences on a more granular level Mm -hmm. where a lot of the characters actually had real world uh, influences like Pete Wheeler, who is the fast, he's probably the fastest player in the game, but he also, his, his character dialogue He'll hit a home run and say something like, did I just do that? So he's not (laughs) totally clear what's going on all the time. And I found out from doing this research that he was modeled off of Forrest Gump, which is a detail that I've probably gotten texted about the most today, (laughs) is people being like, I never realized that, but it makes so much sense now. Uh, Then there were some real-world influences as well, like Kenny Kawaguchi. Uh, In addition to racial diversity, there was a player in a wheelchair, which hadn't really been done in a sports game before. And he was still a great pitcher. He could, instead of running around the bases, wheel around the bases and was actually one of the fastest players doing that. And he was based off of a former classmate one of the developers had who still played sports in a wheelchair. So they sort of brought together this melange of influences to create these characters, which made sense because they were trying to build a realistic set of neighborhood friends anyway. So who better to do that than the people they grew up with? Um, it's not all like, you know, uh, baseball verite. There's some uh, very video gamey elements outside the art design, certainly. There's the power-ups. Um, can you talk, tell us about the power-ups of backyard baseball. The power-ups are great. Uh, <laughs> there is a power-up in backyard baseball, like any video game, is something you earn by accomplishing a, a certain feat. Uh, in this case, instead of, you know, beating a, a boss or something like that or completing a level, it's if you strike a batter out, you get a power-up. If you turn a double play, you get a power-up. If you hit a home run, you can get a power-up. And there, I mentioned before, there were four types of pitches and four types of swings. There's a corresponding power-up for each of those pitches and swings. So instead of just a regular fastball, your power-up is a fireball, which goes 120 miles an hour. Jeez. And instead of a a regular ground ball swing, there's actually a swing called the undergrounder, which you hit the ball so hard it burrows into the earth <laughs> and pops up somewhere in the outfield for a likely double. Ben, is that possible? Can you, is that, I haven't seen it can that be done? happen, but they say you see something new in baseball every day. I like yeah. to see the stat cast data on that. <laughs> but uh, those are power-ups. Uh, you could gain. They came. Uh, they were influenced by Mario Kart because you know, these were people who worked at a gaming studio. They were gaming nerds. They all played Mario and realized the power-ups are the best part of that game. In future iterations of the game, especially once they moved to consoles and you could play multiplayer, the power-ups actually became such a, a valued item that you could intentionally strike out to prevent your opponent from like turning a double play. <laughs> Just so he didn't get that special power up. That's, That's something cheap. I've done before, That's cheap, and it's, yes. it increases the strategy of it. It increases the fun. Uh, Nick Mirkovich, uh, in a quote in the piece, says that that was a game changer in terms of making it more appealing to kids. Like Jason said, beyond just rope baseball, and I kind of agree with him. So, what did people who were involved in the making of the game go on to do? Were there any interesting stories, any interesting trajectories? Like you mentioned, for instance, that Jen Taylor, who was the voice of Sunny Day, the broadcaster you alluded to earlier, went on to play Cortana in Halo and Princess Peach. Pretty good. That's, yeah, not a bad progression. 
did the developers go on to do anything notable or are they still making games? Uh, a lot of them have stayed in the Seattle area and now work at uh, Big Fish mm-hmm. Studio, which is uh, similarly oriented for like kids games. Uh, most of them have basically stayed in this sort of like lower tier not in quality but in terms of you know cost none of them are really working on big budget games or at massive studios and i think a lot of them in talking about their love for humongous which uh went through a lot of corporate restructuring and being sold off to various companies every few years they talked about how much it was like a family how everyone in the office was able to work really closely together on something they loved and really cared for. And it sounded like a lot of them have continued that uh, in the 20 years since working on sort of these, not family operations, but family style operations where they're working really closely together on smaller projects, uh, which allow them to sort of pour their pour their work into something they're passionate for. The last, uh, the last uh, game in the, uh, in the franchise, so to speak, was a mobile offering, 2015. Is there any? Do you think there's any? Are there any plans to bring it back? Bring the franchise back? This was one of the difficulties I had in uh, reporting sort of the most recent parts of Backyard Baseball. It was sold from the company that made the mobile game in 2015. That company was sold to what I could find best as a European investment group oh, last nice. year, and nobody from either of those various companies would return my calls or emails. So <laughs> it is unclear at the moment. Uh, it doesn't look promising. That mobile game, there was both a baseball and mm-hmm. basketball version where they actually partnered with some very cool people. Steph Curry was sort of the the cornerstone of the basketball version and Pittsburgh Pirates player Andrew McCutcheon for the baseball version. Those were the first uh, offerings in the series for five years and neither got very good reviews. I wasn't able to play them because they're no longer downloadable, but just... Mm watching some YouTube videos of people playing them, I could sort of see it wasn't as elaborate or sophisticated as the old games. And also uh, something I talk about in my piece is that the animation style really changed over the years and it just doesn't look as fun anymore. So it's not promising the Twitter account and website are either dormant or non-existent anymore. But at the same time, given that the series sort of went downhill over the course of a decade or so, it isn't a terrible thing that yeah. they're not adding new <laughs> entries. Not, yeah. you know, sort of like the Star Wars prequel question, but people still, you know, remember the games as they existed yeah. 20, 15 to 20 years ago, and that is sort of the golden age of the series. I will say something I, I wish would happen is that they could you know, bring those games back for modern-day technology so I could play backyard baseball on my Mac easily without mm-hmm. downloading strange software. Uh, I, I'd prefer that probably more over a new offering. Yeah, I did want to end by asking you about the downfall of the series because this is something that's not unique to Backyard Baseball. This is a story we see happen a lot where a studio will have a surprise hit, everyone will love it, and then that studio kind of yeah. gets locked into making sequels endlessly. And with each one, it seems it's like a copy of a copy of a copy and the life somehow gets sucked out of it. And it's uh, it's a little less of itself each time you bring it back, like Beric Dondarrion. So is it, I guess, is there, <laughs> <laughs> is there a lesson that other studios, other developers can draw from 
the downfall of this series. Like, how do you preserve what initially made that game appealing while still cashing in on it and giving people more chances to play it? Well, I think actually one of the lessons here isn't even so much about making too many sequels, but about recognizing what makes the game great. Yeah. Because one of the things... You got crammed! Yeah, one, of the th- <laughs> one of the things we've talked about here is how great the cartoony style was. Yeah. Uh, it was really fun with the artwork. And as the technology improved, they sought to adapt the game to fit with that new technology. They made the character animations optimized for 3D when they switched mm. to consoles, things like that. They uh, added new controls, the PlayStation game. Uh, I believe I actually have the PlayStation 2 game uh, back in my childhood home. And that game, it wasn't just single click, obviously, but there were a lot of different controls that was a little, you know, more advanced probably than something a five to seven year old could play. So in the course of updating the game for the new technology, they actually lost some of what made the game great and small and accessible in its initial iterations. And I don't know if there's an analog, maybe like uh, making too many sequels that rely on CGI now in a movie as opposed to going with models and old classic techniques that made the the movies feel more relatable. So I'm not sure if that's necessarily a lesson for other studios going forward, but just really honing in on what makes the game great and expanding that part as opposed to adapting it for updated technology. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, whether you played the original or not, Go check out Zach's story. It is great and fun and comprehensive. You reported this for months, I know, and really, I think, dug into it. I know that people who played the game are loving this today. So go check it out at TheRinger.com. Find Zach on Twitter at Zach Cram. That's Zach with an H, not with a K like Zach Cranky. You can find (laughs) Zach Cram also (laughs) writing throughout this month about the actual baseball playoffs so go check him out read all of his work Zach thank you very much for coming on read all of it you'll learn a lot thank you and uh, congratulations for this weekend oh thank you appreciate it alright Jason that will do it for today I will see you soon do you have any advice for me as a married man, from oh one God. married man to a, a soon-to-be-married man? Any advice for me? My God. Ben, this is a deeper conversation <laughs> than I thought we were going to get into. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I wish you only the best. And I think uh, you. uh, your love will endure. I've seen oh. how you guys are together. It's wonderful. It's wonderful and it's truly touching. Yeah. And I can't wait to, to watch you guys uh, become man and wife. Oh, thank you. We game together. Couple that games together, stays together. Hopefully. It's incredible. Not always true. Hopefully in our case. I mean it's better. Listen. Sharing sharing your passions, it can't it can't hurt. Yeah. That's right. All right. We share a passion for video games. You can catch us here at Achievement Oriented every week. We'll be back next week too. You've been listening to Achievement Oriented part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Walking Dead No Man's Land is the official mobile game of AMC's The Walking Dead. It's a turn-based strategy game where you battle hordes of walkers with all your favorite TWD heroes, including Daryl. 
Rick and Michonne. There's tons to do. And they even added a new hardcore game mode for experienced players called The Distance. Download the free game app from the App Store or Google Play or go to getnomansland.com slash Rick now and get Negan for free. This special offer is only available right now. Video games are super fun. Controversial statement, I know. Yes. They're also super expensive. And once you bust open that plastic, you are stuck with them. They lose their resale value the second you bust open that plastic. It's like driving a new car off the lot. That's right. That's why Redbox lets you try out the hottest new games risk-free. Right now, you can rent The Evil Within 2, Destiny 2, NBA 2K18. Hey. Oh, we just talked about that game. Good game. And more. Text Achievement. You all know how to spell achievement. I before E, in this case, to 727272 for a free one-night game rental. Redbox, the smarter way to watch and play. Offer expires December 31st, 2017. You have only two and a half months to get in on this. <laughs> Subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. Payment card required. If you're not in Text Club, Redbox will send you an additional text with an invite to join their recurring alerts. Message and data rates may apply. For terms, visit www.redbox.com slash text club. And for the privacy policy, visit redbox.com slash privacy.